Senator Elizabeth Warren recently shared results of a genetic analysis to back up her family's story of Cherokee ancestry, hoping to blunt a favorite Republican attack line. The move backfired. A DNA result does not confer a Cherokee heritage. And in general, efforts to link our genetics with our ethnic or cultural identities have a long and sordid history. So what's more revealing? The results of DNA tests like Warren's? Or what we try to find in them? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. With me in the studio today here in D.C. is a Radio Atlantic veteran, staff writer, Sarah Zhang. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Matt. So nice to be back. It's so nice to have you. You've been doing wonderful coverage of the scientific, cultural, political, personal dimensions of DNA testing, which pertains to our conversation here today. And uh, joining us by phone from Oklahoma is Rebecca Nagel, a writer, community organizer, and citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. This week, neither of you will be surprised to hear, (laughs) Senator Elizabeth Warren kicked off quite a fuss when she announced the results of a DNA test that she said proved her Native American ancestry. Her claims of having a Cherokee ancestor had been ridiculed for a long time by President Trump and other Republicans. And actually, the president had challenged her about these claims at a rally, saying that if she could prove them, uh, he'd give her favorite charity a million dollars. Warren, since posting her DNA analysis, asked the president to donate his stake in the losing bet to a Native American charity. But the whole exchange between Trump and Warren obscures the fact that citizenship in the the Cherokee Nation is not determined by a DNA test. Much like the U.S., that citizenship is conferred by the Cherokee Nation on individuals who can meet the criteria for eligibility. So by publicizing these results, Warren has perpetuated a false idea that they mean something regarding her putative part Cherokee ancestry. Now, Rebecca, I wanted to start with a big kind of broad question to you. You are actually a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. (laughs) What does that identity mean to you? And how does it manifest in your life in a day-to-day basis? Wow, that's a big question. That is a big question. Um, Well, I think for, first off, I think that it's important for people to understand that as Native Americans, we're not a race, we're a political group. And so my status as a Cherokee Nation citizen is established by the nation-to-nation relationship between my tribe and the United States that has been established by the several treaties that we have signed together. Um, And part of what that means for me and why it's significant is that I'm actually the descendants of treaty signers. And so um, my ancestors, Major Ridge and John Ridge, signed the Treaty of New Echota, Um, that was actually Cherokee Nation's removal treaty. And it was um, controversial, and they were actually assassinated um, for that decision in a series of um, revenge killings and violence that happened within Cherokee Nation after we got to Oklahoma. And, you know, I think about their extremely difficult and impossible decision to do that and um, the sacrifice that they made signing it knowing that they would pay with their lives 
but they thought that moving west would be the only way that Cherokee Nation would remain a sovereign tribe and that if we stayed east, we would just be absorbed. Um, and so for me, that point of sovereignty um, is something that I carry with me every day in my life. Um, you know, right now I actually have the privilege of working for my tribe um, for an adult language immersion program and um, learning to speak my language. Um, and I'm at the very beginning stages of it, very difficult language. But for me, that also goes back to sovereignty because for us, to self-determine as Indigenous people. It's about us being able to speak our language. It's about us being able to practice our culture. It's about us being able to pass our own laws, say what we want to have happen with our own artifacts, say who we want raising our children, and the entire legal structure that allows us to exist as Native people in those ways is um, really determined by tribal sovereignty. Yeah. I want to um, quote a passage that you wrote for uh, Think Progress just a, a little while ago. Um, quote, as contemporary Native Americans, we live in the space between Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren, between the stereotypes that were created to excuse the ho- wholesale slaughter of our people and the stereotypes that were created to excuse the wholesale appropriation of our identity and cultures. The Trumps and Warrens of the world leave very little space for us to exist, which, when you understand the history of the United States, makes perfect sense. I wanted to ask you, what were some of the stereotypes that you were summoning when you wrote that passage? You know, it's something that I'm faced with every day. I mean, right now, my Twitter mention feed is full of people telling me that I'm white because I look white. Like, obviously, I'm white. I should just take a DNA test and I should have to prove that I'm Native American. And Elizabeth Warren is more Native than I am and that I should shut up. Um, And I think that... um, You know, Native people in the United States right now are invisible. Um, And that's why this conversation is so damning is because, you know, non-Native people have no real information about what it means to be a citizen of a tribe to check the harmful stereotypes that they're hearing about in the media against. You know, you're not going to find us in your textbooks. You're not going to find us on television. You're not going to find us in the news. And that wholesale erasure informs what it's like for me to interact with non-Native people on a daily basis. Yeah. I One part of this that is particularly fascinating, this whole story, is the the DNA test. Um, there is a a deep and trenchant desire on the part of uh, of some Americans to establish that much of our identity can be determined by DNA, <laughs> um, and that is obviously one of the factors that's at issue in this particular week in this particular story. And Sarah, I wanted to ask you the question: um, What can DNA? tell us about our culture or identity and what can't it tell us? Uh, Yeah, well, um, I think, first of all, it probably can't tell us that much about our culture and identity, but maybe we can talk a little bit about how these tests work, which also gets at the limitations of what they can tell us. So I think in the case of Elizabeth Warren, what she did, she didn't take a 23andMe or Ancestry test, but she sent her DNA to a Stanford geneticist who consults for these companies. He did something very similar, which is he looked at um, about, you know, a little bit over 600,000 letters in her DNA that are sort of especially informative for Ancestry and compared them to uh, a reference data set. So this reference 
often say is that it's made up of people whose DNA has been analyzed who uh, live, uh, are of European descent or are of European descent and live in the U.S., and then also of people who are indigenous in Colombia, Peru, and Mexico. And we can go back and talk about why in those countries and not the U.S. in a second. Um, but what he found is that there were a few small segments in her DNA that just stood out as not looking European. There's not very many, but enough that he thought you know, she probably had an indigenous ancestor six to ten generations ago. So that's about the best available that the technology can tell us. But what does that mean? I don't think science can answer that. Yeah. You had written in um, a great piece for the site, uh, quote, at a recent genealogy meeting I attended, an audience member asked how to convince people to upload their DNA results to more genealogy sites. Uh, uh you quote one member of the audience saying, quote, tell them they'll find their Native American and they'll all go. <laughs> um, why do you think that there is such a persistent desire among folks who haven't actually inhabited Native American culture yeah. in any significant way to nonetheless claim Native American. Yeah, heritage. I was, you know, I knew this was a thing, but I was surprised when literally everyone in the room burst out laughing because this had happened to them. <laughs> uh, well, I think there might be a few different things. Uh, I think one is um, some people did grow up with this in their family history. And whether it's accurate or not, this is part of their family history and they're looking for a documentation of that. Um, I think there's another part, and this is this might come off as a little bit cynical, but I think um, maybe some Americans want to feel like they are not just white. Maybe they have something a little bit more interesting in their background, or some you know, some people have said maybe quote unquote exotic, and it's not it's not just uh, you know looking for Native American roots. Sometimes it's anything that is unexpected or often non-European is interesting or quote unquote exotic. Yeah. But like Rachel Dolezal notwithstanding, <laughs> um, folks aren't like lining up to say, uh, hey, I'm actually I'm actually black. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think it's almost like um, you get to you get to be interesting without having to also pay the, the, the dis have the disadvantages of being that. Right. Like this is something that's maybe cool to like post on Facebook or to like, you know, talk about at a party, but you don't have to live the consequences of actually say being black. Yeah. And Rebecca, I want to point th that question to you. I'm curious, um, as for myself, you know, coming from someone, my uh, ethnic and racial identity is um, is pretty stigmatized, and um, and I'm curious what what is it like <laughs> to have people um, uh, claiming part of your identity or wanting to at least? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the, what exactly what you guys are, were talking about is so true that, you know, racial identity theft is normally not socially acceptable, especially on the left. Um, but somehow Native identity is this cruel exception. And I think it's important for people to put it in its historical context. You know, if you think about, um, you know, and I could talk for hours about, you know, the legal reality and historical documents that back this up, and it may sound like an abstract idea, but the United States and the kind of idea of the whole United States is white settlers replacing Native people. 
and replacing us. And so I think it's kind of a logical extension of that, that at some point they would claim to be us, you know, while not participating in our culture, while not experiencing the same kind of discrimination, but thinking that even our identity is theirs. Um, And I think that because it's so pervasive and it's so popular, especially the theft of Cherokee identity, a lot of people don't know enough to, one, know why it's not true. You know, basic facts like Cherokees are one of the most well-documented people in the history of the world up there with royalty, and so it's pretty ridiculous for people to say that they're Cherokee and not have any documentation. Um And so people just don't know enough to know how to ask the right questions about these false claims. Yeah. Um, Sarah, you had spoken to Kim Tallbear, who is a professor at the University of Alberta, who who researches anthropology. Um, You asked her about this case and you wrote, quote, she said it showed a grave misunderstanding of Native American identity. And quoting Professor Tallbear here, quote, it might be all these people have Native American ancestry, she said. My question is, who cares? Um, If there is a particular ancestor that is close enough you can find living family, then you can do that. If there's nobody for you to find and no tribal community that's going to claim you, it doesn't really mean anything, end quote. So Elizabeth Warren doesn't have any ancestors listed on the Dawes Rolls, which is the federal census of Cherokee citizens taken at the turn of the 20th century. Having an ancestor on the Rolls is a prerequisite for eligibility in the Cherokee Nation. And so I have a pure science question for you. Would it be possible for a DNA test to even establish an ancestral tie to someone on the Dawes Rolls? I think the answer right now is no and probably will be no. Well, I think there's there's sort of a lot of different levels to this, right? And one, um, uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, why why didn't uh, the Stanford Genesis compare Elizabeth Warren to anyone who is a Native American in the U.S.? The answer is that um, uh, Native Americans have not given their DNA to these databases. And the reason is that there is this kind of a long history of misunderstanding between Genesists and Native American tribes, um, Going back to several incidents back in the '90s, and they're they're just uh, they have not they have not participated in these studies. Um, uh, and there there are lots of other you know uh, questions of like how do you establish someone as a tribe? Like one is like there are lots and lots of different tribes. Like uh, is there uh, who belongs to a tribe that's not a static, <laughs> right? Like uh, people are um, having children. Uh, they are moving. Um, how do you even determine that? Um, and I think just getting back to you know what Rebecca has been saying, Elizabeth Warren is sort of striking this careful balance where she is not saying that she is a Cherokee or even Native American, but she's kind of framing it as uh, these are stories my parents have told me, and Donald Trump is calling my mom a liar, and that's what's hurtful. Um, and she she you know she is trying to strike this careful balance, but it's very difficult because now there are headlines everywhere saying like. DNA and Native American. Um, and I think that is also pressuring that message. Yeah. So I wanted to, for a moment, just put aside the claims that Warren made about her cultural heritage and ask about the experience of stigma that she described. Uh, she said in part that her because her ancestor was perceived by others in her community as Native American, she was stigmatized as a result. And I was curious that even if that perception was wrong, does the sense of having been stigmatized create any sense of affinity for you? Well, I think that the problem with um, 
Warren's story is that they're, it's not grounded in fact. And so, you know, she go, always goes back to, and even in her most sort of recent campaign style video, goes back to this story of the elopement. But um, if you look at it, it doesn't look like an elopement based on the historical records. You know, her parents were married by a prominent minister in the community. There was a newspaper announcement of their wedding. Um, and so normally, if it was looked down upon, you wouldn't see those things. Um, and then to contrast that with my experience and my family, um, you know, when my Cherokee grandmother married my Irish grandfather, his mother, my great-grandmother, um, was so opposed to the wedding that she disowned her son. And we have this handwritten letter that's actually written in pencil um, that one of my cousins has telling my grandfather that he's dead to her because he's marrying an Indian. Um, and they actually eloped, instead of eloping to, like, the next town over, they eloped to a different state. And so it doesn't resonate with me, um, and her stories don't resonate with me because I have my own stories, and I'm also surrounded by other Native people who have their own stories. And for those of us who are, are Native, we, we hear that difference that I think a lot of non-Native people don't hear um, because non-Native people aren't used to hearing stories from Native people. Actually, they're more used to hearing stories from people like Warren than they're used to hearing stories from Native people. And so I, I don't think it sends up the red flags that it does for us. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, I sort of have a question kind of going off of that, which is that, you know, putting Elizabeth Warren aside for a second, she's a public figure, she's a politician, she has responsibility that, you know, ordinary people don't, but lots of Americans have these stories in their families. Um, and, you know, they're not trying to join a Native American tribe, they're not necessarily trying to identify as Native American, but they're interested in investigating these roots because it's part of their family history. Um, what do you say to them? I think people should do their genealogy and go into that process with the mindset that there's a 99.9% .9 chance that the story that their family has is wrong. You know, I mean, and Cherokee genealogists do this type of work all the time. You know, my friends are Cherokee genealogists and people will come, you know, with these stories and pretty much anyone who publicly claims to be Cherokee, they'll do the genealogy and see if it matches up. And so it's actually not, I think a lot of people treat it like it's this mystery that we can't solve. And it's not like if, if somebody was claiming to be, you know, related to like the Duke of London or something, I don't even know if that's a thing, but you know how people <laughs> like make up these stories about being related to royalty, yeah. you would just be like, okay, well, where's the evidence? So like, why don't we apply that same logic to Cherokee people? And it's because there's this idea that, you know, what happened when we traveled the Trail of Tears is that we all just like went into hiding and scattered. And that's not true. Like, what actually happened is that we came to Oklahoma and we reestablished our government. You know, after removal, Cherokee Nation had the first compulsory co-ed public education system in the United States. You know, we're not some sort of primitive people hiding out in the woods. And I think that a lot of that racist thinking is what fuels these myths. And I think the other thing that it does is that it whitewashes an extremely violent history 
One of the reasons that Cherokee people are so well-documented is much like the Nazis during World War II and the Holocaust, the U.S. government kept really good records of the people that they were trying to exterminate, you know? And so there is a log of every person that traveled the Trail of Tears and their daily rations. There's a census of Cherokee people before we were rounded up for removal so they would know how many people they were rounding up. And there's that role that everyone likes to complicate the Dawes role, um, and say that, you know, their ancestors aren't on it for blah, blah, blah reason. But it's, if you actually look at the historical documents, actual Cherokee people who didn't want to sign up because they didn't want to go through this forced assimilation process were thrown in jail and then signed up anyways without their consent. Meanwhile, um, thousands, thousands of white people flooded Indian territory trying to get on the rolls of the five tribes so that they could get a piece of free land. And the tribes had to fight those people to get them off. And now their grandkids and their great caring kids are still coming around and saying, look, you know, like my ancestor applied to be on your rolls and you kicked us off and it's not fair. You know, I mean, it's like when you actually look at the history these claims aren't innocent, but they're based in like a really, really, really violent and brutal history of white entitlement. I want to ask you um, one more question and one about the contemporary politics of this um, before I turn to a few larger questions just about, you know, the ineffable uh, identity and, and, and heritage aspects of, of what we've been discussing. But Rebecca, um, you wrote in the Huffington Post recently that, quote, the politics of who is and who is not Indian has real consequences. Um, you talk about the Mashpee Wampanoag, um, the tribe that welcomed the pilgrims, as you as you wrote it, who, quote, had their land taken out of trust because, according to the Department of the Interior, they no longer fit the legal definition of Indian. The Trump administration's actions against the Wampanoag is the first time tribal land has been taken out of trust since Harry Truman's presidency, you wrote. Uh, now that the Department of, of the Interior has um, ruled on this, one of the few recourses that um, the Mashpee Wampanoag have um, to claiming this land um, as part of the trust is a bill that was introduced into the House of Representatives by U.S. Democratic Representative William Keating. Um, and it was followed by a corresponding bill in the Senate. The Wampanoag Tribal Council Chairman Cedric Cromwell issued a statement saying, I would very much like to thank the outstanding leadership of Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren on this bill to protect our ancestral homeland. And so I'm curious about the the political uh, extension of, of Warren's claims here. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren could both say, listen, I don't identify as Cherokee and I apologize for claiming any identity um, in any part, um, claiming that identity in any part. And also I offer Native Americans political support. Do you think that there is any political argument for saying, okay, let's all agree that Cherokee heritage is not a matter of DNA tests, but um, you can privately chase your alleged Cherokee ancestor as long as you support tribal interests like the Mashpee Wampanoags? You know, I think that Warren um, could have done that before Monday. And I think now we're at a point of no return where her her decision to release the DNA test, you know, she is a U.S. senator. She's a former Harvard law professor. Um, she claims to be, you know, a champion of tribal sovereignty and an ally to Native people. So she has to know enough about the current political climate and the threats to tribal sovereignty and how 
the ideas of race um, versus citizenship really plays into that to know that this would have a negative impact and that she would make a political calculation that beating Trump was more important to that. Um, for me, she's done. And I, I just think it was reckless and irresponsible. And that like the attack on native rights using confusion about native identity and confusion about race is real. And Warren adding to that for me is unacceptable. Now, I want to play an edited clip of some of um, Senator Warren's remarks to the National Congress of American Indians um, uh, the other day. Um, she said this. I understand that tribal membership is determined by tribes and only by tribes. I never used my family tree to get a break or get ahead. I never used it to advance my career. So I'm here today to make a promise. Every time someone brings up my story, I'm going to use it to lift up the story of your families and your communities. And Rebecca, to close out just this part of the discussion on politics, I'm curious, given the current political challenges and realities that you describe, um, do you think that there's any advantage to having someone highly placed in the Senate, um, possibly elsewhere, um, that by dint of claiming a Native American identity, um, in part, also claim allyship? Yeah, um, well, I think the, the speech that Elizabeth Warren made to NCAI needs to be put in its political context. Um, and not that I take full credit for it, but it was actually after I... Um, and some other liberal Native people had drawn a lot of criticism. Um, I, you know, I wrote a piece for Think Progress criticizing her, and it was one of the first times the criticism had come from the left, and I think she always just kind of ignored it when it came from Trump and the far right, but when it started coming from the left, you could tell that the way she talked about the issue changed. Um, the other thing about her speech in February to NCAI is that um, her history of sponsoring and supporting Native legislation basically started within like a two-week window of making that speech. So in her entire tenure as a senator, she's been supporting Native issues for less than a year. And I think that it's not that it's not helpful to Native people and that Native people shouldn't work with her and that we shouldn't accept that help. But I think it's pretty messed up for people to say that, well, since you guys are so marginalized anyways, shouldn't you just accept help at whatever cost it comes? And I would assert that no, like Native people deserve an ally that is going to championship our, champion our rights um, in the Senate and is also not going to participate in things like releasing a DNA test um, that really undermines our sovereignty. And you can look at some senators that have actual relationships with tribes and Native people in their state that are consistently sponsoring Native legislation. You know, Tester, even Murkowski is a good example. And when you look at, you know, bills that are coming through the Indian Affairs Committee, they're constantly on there. And 
Warren isn't, you know, and that's because she's new to this. And I, you know, I welcome her to continue to help Indian country and she should. And honestly, every senator um, who is in, you know, Congress right now should be doing that. But we shouldn't, I don't think as Native people, we should be asked to make that trade off. Yeah. I want to turn away from um, uh, Warren herself and, and the politics a little bit and Talk once again a bit more about um, about culture and our cultural identities. Um, and it, there is, seems to be this sort of deeper, um, widespread yearning among some for um, our DNA to say something essential about who we are or who we have the potential to be. Um, Sarah, you wrote this fascinating story from last year about participants on um, the White Nationalist Discussion Forum, Stormfront, having to confront DNA test results that revealed their ancestry wasn't 100% European. And it forced at least some of them to rethink, as you write, quote, the criteria for whiteness. For example, one user, you write, suggested a white nationalist confederation or different nations would have slightly different criteria for inclusion, end quote. And then you quote another example user who says, so in one nation, having Genghis Khan as your ancestor won't disqualify you, <laughs> while in others it might. Hypothetically, I might take a DNA test and find that I don't qualify for every nation and every nation's standards, though I'm sure that at least one of those nations and probably many of them would, will have standards that would include me. So like the Stormfront folks have have like gone deep on this. Yeah, they've discovered race as a social construct. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what is, what, what did you see in your dive through the darker corners of the web and in the desire about making genetics say something fundamental about who we are. Yeah, well, Storefront is so interesting because this is a forum that's been around since, uh, I think, the 90s, which means it's been around since the first human was sequenced up to our current you know, current moment where 23andMe and Ancestry DNA are becoming super popular. Um, so uh, the story was that I wrote was based on uh, some research that uh, sociologists did to see what happened when white nationalists got African ancestry in their results. Um, well, no one renounced white nationalism, which is maybe not surprising. You probably wouldn't do that on Stormfront. Um, but one of uh, one other interesting reaction was that uh, to say, well, my ancestor must have been raped, um, which is also kind of plays into mm. their racist ideas of, yeah. <laughs> of history. Um, yeah. yeah, and the other reaction is, and, you know, as you were talking about, is to say, well, you know, we should think about what exactly the criteria for whiteness is, and maybe it should be this way or that way, or should be your mother's line or your father's line. Um, and I think that you, you see them discovering that, like, this the, there's no objective criteria and we as a society and they as a forum are kind of deciding it on the go. Yeah. So some folks are a- approaching their DNA as, as like a hunt for particular things about themselves. Um, but I imagine a lot of folks are having the experience of taking a DNA test and finding out something unexpected or seeing something unexpected in the result that returns. And yeah. w- what do you think people can do with that information when they get it? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think it, um, first of all, depends on what exactly the result is. Um, so one one thing that you sometimes see if you watch a lot of 23andMe reveal videos, which is a genre on YouTube now, is... Um, <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> of course. Uh, a lot of African-Americans, they'll discover that they have white ancestry, which is, of course, a uh, legacy of uh, slavery, right? Um, and so... W- 
one sort of like really super like uh, you know maybe almost naive reaction is like oh everybody's mixed we should just all be happy because we're all mixed um, another another way is to use DNA to think about history right like uh, use it to interrogate like why did this happen and not just kind of uh, uh, just you know, and and realize that you probably had both slaves and slave owners in your past, and they make up who you are. Um, and not to just say, "Well, now we're all one big happy family." Yeah, uh, and Rebecca, I'll point my last question to you before we turn to our closer, closing segment. Um, for all the people out there who are taking these DNA tests and finding out that they may have had a distant ancestor who was Native American, what? If anything, would you hope that they would do with that information? Very little. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that um, I think that the I think science has always had a very troubling relationship with race, especially when it comes to science defining race. And so, I think that we need to enter this surge of DNA testing with a heavy and healthy dose of skepticism. Um, you know, and we, you were talking about it a little bit earlier, but there's a pretty troubled history of um, Native Americans participating in these tests, and there's also a history of Native people's biospecimens being used um, under, you know, questionably ethical circumstances that we wouldn't consider acceptable today. You know, there are tribes that have had to sue universities to get them to stop doing the research. And so, you know, Native Americans are actually the group on um, the group where the genetic material is the least specific and I think the most questionable. I mean, I think that, you know, Warren's test saying that she's from North Central or South America is kind of absurd. You know, if there was a scientific test that said, oh, well, you're from somewhere between England and Tokyo, we wouldn't see that as being racially specific, but why do we apply the same logic to a diverse group of indigenous people that live from present-day Alaska to Chile, you know? Um, And so, and I also think that, you know, being Native American is not about what a scientist says, is not about what a DNA test says. It's about having a relationship to a tribe. It's about who your family is and who your community is. And it's not okay for science in any way to supersede that or to take the place of the tribal communities, the kinship, and the laws that Native people have worked really hard to create and to preserve. Yeah. I think uh, for listeners who want to continue diving into um, some of the questions that we've touched on in this conversation, I'm going to recommend the conversation that we had with Alex Wagner about her book, um, Future Face, earlier this year, in part because... Uh, That book is Alex's story of her dive into her own identity and uh, the the history of her ancestors and her lineage. And I think one of the lessons implicit in it is that uh, we come to our own histories sometimes with curiosity um, about the history that we might be able to claim or the heritage that we might be able to claim. And just as often um, we walk away with hopefully a fuller understanding of the history that we instead have to contend with. I want to turn us next in a minute 
to our closing segment, Keepers. So stick around. turn to keepers the question that i ask at the end of every radio atlantic episode when i ask our you our listeners and to our guests what is it that you have heard read watched listened to experienced recently that you do not want to forget first we will play a keeper from our listener ann one of my keepers is reestablishing a balance of power in my marriage in that i have lost most of my vision And we downsized uh, to smaller house, single story, getting ahead of things. And we've been married almost 40 years and still very romantic. But when we moved here, um, my husband started taking on more duties. He would wave me out of the kitchen, would not let me do things. And so suddenly I said, okay, if that's the way you want it. And, but it began to, uh, destabilize marriage. It was more of a dependency versus a caretaker and being cared for. So once I figured it out, we had a a conversation about it and balanced the scales so that we now are back again as husband and wife. And so now I carry in the groceries and empty the trash and do the recycles and water the plants and put away the groceries and it I put a bump dot on the dryer so I could do it. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Personally, yeah. it was figuring out the value of a marriage and the relationship of, between the two. And that's my keeper. It worked. Hmm. I think that's a lovely story. Uh, it is a reminder, a good reminder, actually, that even after 40 years, the phases of our relationships with each other can keep changing. Sarah, what is your keeper? Um, yeah, I'm just going to recount the most delightful thing I've seen in the past week, um, which is that uh, Liam Neeson is in a new movie. It is a Western. He <laughs> rides a horse. Uh, in the course of promoting this movie, he told one reporter that the horse recognized him. Um, and page six wrote this up. Um, a writer tweeted, this is the love story our generation deserves. Um, the horse recognized him from a previous movie. Okay. All right. At this point, Russell Crowe jumps in on Twitter and says, this is absolutely true. There's a horse, George, who I gave the speech in the forest and gladiator on. Years later, he was on the set of Robin Hood and we would have a chat every day. Same with the white horse, Rusty and Robin Hood. We chatted again on Les Mis. Lifelong friends. <laughs> Wonderful. So I just love the idea of like a Tom Hanks of horses hanging around on sets. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Horse better get an Instagram. <laughs> Rebecca, what would you like to keep? Um, well, the thing I'm struggling to keep inside my brain every day is the Cherokee language um, and memorizing and learning and understanding new vocabulary. And um, this morning I was practicing a, 
a difficult set of words. Um, and so the word that I'm trying to keep right now is skidis, uh, which means to um, please hand me something. But um, the thing that's complicated about Cherokee is that we have, um, it's an extremely sophisticated and exact language. And so anytime you're talking, anytime you have a verb that's talking about an object, um, there are classifications. So the word changes depending on what type of object you're setting down, you're picking up, you're handing, you're putting over, you're hanging on the wall. Um, all those verbs change depending on the shape of the object. So um, I was trying to remember skibis, which means uh, please hand me something that is long. Um, skus is sort of the neutral, so something that's round or heavy or skin at us, which is like, hand me something that's liquid. <laughs> awesome. Well, best of luck with your continued, uh, <laughs> with your continued <laughs> Thank studies. Thank you. Yeah. I'm at the beginning of a very long journey. <laughs> Absolutely. Lifelong journey, perhaps. Um, I, for my part, um, uh, I want to shout out another podcast that I hope many of you um, uh, have listened to or will uh, check out after this. Um, so much deserved praise has been lavished on the podcast. Everything is alive by Ian Shillog. Um, and until this week, I, and I think several other people have been telling folks, Oh no, you, you like listen to this podcast and start with the first episode, Lewis can of cola. So the conceit of the show is that, um, in every episode, the host, Ian, interviews a different inanimate object. <laughs> the inanimate object is played by um, an actor who has been um, prepped with actual real details about the um, uh, what the object is and how it's made, where it comes from, um, just obscure facts and trivia and history about the object and its life or objects like it. Um, and so... The conversation is a somewhat improvised conversation. If you listen to the first episode, um, Lewis Can of Cola, you'll hear a little bit about how these conversations are constructed. Um, but what is fantastic about this show is that um, it seems like such a silly, high-concept thing, uh, but the name of it, I think, really does speak to the ethos of it. Everything is alive. Um, this idea that all around us are... Um, are all of these things um, that we may think of as things and therefore disregard as things, but nonetheless have an experience of the world and things to tell us about it. And so now the new episode that I'm recommending to people is the most recently published episode, Chioke, Grain of Sand. Because these interviews are improvised and pretty naturalistic, there's this moment where as a listener, you might not know whether this is supposed to happen, but Chioke ends up having a problem of pronouns. Let me play it. Yeah, I mean, I think that if there's one difference between them and I, sorry, I'm just ha I'm having trouble with the pronouns. You know, we, we're doing this interview, and I'm a grain of sand. Yeah, but that's not really that's not really the way that I would think of myself. I think normally I would just say we are sand. Okay. Um. So 
So you see that there's the, the kind of mass noun thing happening. And it's weird to talk to you because you don't have a mass noun thing or you don't seem to have a mass noun arrangement. So you say of yourself that you're a, a person, right? Yeah. yeah, I would say I am, I am a person. So, like, why aren't you a grain of person? Like, uh, why do I not consider myself as, like, a, a fraction of all of humanity? Yeah, like, that, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I yes. haven't listened to the episode yet, but I love the lamppost episode. Yes, the lamppost episode is also pretty great. Yeah, I haven't heard that. I'll have to check it out. Highly recommend it. Um, after. Yeah, yeah. It's always, I'm always looking for new things to listen to. Well, now you have one, and let me know if you <laughs> let me know if you like it. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And you know, I it's um, I think I I told um, someone from your team this in an email, but I actually a couple months ago like did some media research where I created this giant spreadsheet of the top Google results for. Native American Elizabeth Warren and was trying to kind of see if I could quantify, um, you know, how much terrible myths about Native identity were coming up, like blood quantum and DNA tests and all of these things and put some numbers behind it so people could see why it was so harmful. Um, I haven't written about it yet, but actually I came across an article from the Atlantic. <laughs> one of the few non-Native publications that got it. And so um, when you guys contacted me, I was excited about working with you and I, I appreciate your coverage of it. Thank you very much, Rebecca, and we appreciate you joining us. And Sarah, thank you, as always, for your great reporting and your contributions today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I knew this story was going to come up as soon as it became clear she's going to run for president. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's such a predictable step. Well, here's to foresight. Thanks, y'all. Till next time. That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. Thank you once again to our staff writer, Sarah Zhang, and to Rebecca Nagel, our guest. Thank you, as always, to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, to the Atlantic's executive producer for podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by the one and only John Batiste. What is your keeper? Call us at 202-266-7600 and leave us a voicemail with your contact information. Check us out at theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch our show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, do rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. But most importantly, thank you for listening. May you use the lessons of your own history to craft a better future. We'll see you next week. Thank you.